Hello out there, and welcome to No Stupid Answers, episode 19, the show with the most qualified people discussing and answering the most interesting questions from Reddit. I'm Colton Wallace, joined by Queen of Podcasting, Gloria Sava. What's up? PhD, Dr. Jessica Azarians. Hey there. And our resident linguist, Josh Lieto. Ahoy, Colton. Ho gaat het? Vad? That means, how is it going in Dutch? Thanks. I'll try and remember that. Do you want to hear a, a crazy story? Yeah, as long yes. as you don't yell the whole time you tell it. <laughs> what if I did yell all the whole time? People at home wouldn't enjoy it. All right. So guess what happened to us this weekend? What happened? It is about our dog. Um, he was skunked. It was... <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> to be... To be fair, it was only like a half skunking. It wasn't a full-on skunk, which thank God. So I took him outside like normal, and I normally like stomp on the deck. And um, just for listeners out there, we have a Pomeranian. His name is Miso. He is white and cream, like a little toasted marshmallow with like the little like white underbelly and like a little bit of toasted um, sweetness on his on his face and on his back. He's very cute. And then we also have a neighborhood full of skunks. We also have a neighborhood <laughs> full of skunks, yes. Um, like I've never seen as many skunks as are in our neighborhood in, our whole, in my whole life. There's everywhere. Um, so I normally take him out at night and stomp on the deck and there's lights on and they run away if they're around. So I did that and uh, he goes down into the grass. He just kind of like starts sniffing around this one little area. And then I see him like put his face into the grass and then jump way back like he was on spring. It's like he jumped back like a cat. And I was like, okay. Um, And then, you know, he does his business and then he like runs back on the deck and like we go inside. And then all of a sudden I start smelling like the skunk and um i didn't see a skunk outside and it wasn't obvious or immediately apparent that he had skunk on him at all um because it wasn't like as strong of a skunk smell as we've actually smelled just being in our house and having skunks outside so i was just like oh my god what is that um and he's rubbing his face like furiously all over his little um his little bed, his little plushy bed. And then I realize it and I'm like, oh my God, I think he got skunk on him. And so <laughs> I freak out. I like, you know, snatch him up and like throw him in the bath. And so, you know, we clean him up really good. And just FYI, if you're ever in this situation, hydrogen peroxide, baking soda, and dish soap should oxidize the skunk chemicals or sulfur compounds. They're called thiols. So what's the deal with peanut butter? So like dissolves like and skunk spray is oily. And so like peanut butter is oily. So if you dissolve something oily with an oil, like it tends to um, remove the thing. So like you can put um, peanut butter on gum and it helps, you know, soften up the resins in the gum for a similar reason. But uh, I don't think that would work. I think you just have skunky (laughs) peanut butter and a very peanut dog. A very greasy dog. That would be very sad. And so I got him cleaned off. And like the first night he smelled like soap still. And then I noticed like the smell creeping back. I could notice it on him when he got near me. And it, he, this was not a full on skunking. I think it just, I think it was in the grass. And I think that he rubbed a little bit on his face <laughs> when he was trying to roll in it. 
Anyways, I figured out how to get rid of the skunk smell. Um, skunk removers, like skunk odor removers work really well. So I bought one at the store and he's skunk free currently. But yeah, um, I can can confirm that tomato juice does not work. Whatever you use to, um, you know, treat your animal after it's been skunked needs to remove the oily substance. So it needs to have something like a dish soap or some type of soap that can break up the oiliness. Um, and it needs something to oxidize those sulfur-containing compounds. And the things that will oxidize it are going to be um, hydrogen peroxide and baking soda. Um, and there's tons of recipes on online for this. They That does work. Tomato juice does not. Um, and so now I have like an, an arsenal of de-skunkifier in the cabinets in case this happens again because it was a nightmare. And um, some things still smell like skunk. All right, we'll move into the questions for this week. Our first question this week, posted on Reddit by user St- Soda Stereo. And the question is, did the government decide that 40-hour work weeks would be the standard working life for most? At what point did working five days and only getting two days off become business as usual? So are you guys very familiar with the history of the 40-hour work week? I am not. So I did some reading on this and... Um, from what I found uh, from the All Things Considered podcast, uh, they had an article posted, How the 40-Hour Workweek Became the Norm. From reading that, the information it gave me was that up before the Industrial Revolution, there wasn't as much of a structured work week. And during the Industrial Revolution, so if you're looking at early 1800s to, I think, late 1800s, uh, you'd have people working 70 plus hours a week, and that would have been common. And then in the United States in the 1920s, Henry Ford adopted the 40-hour workweek for his factories. Mm -hmm. And with that, he was trying to run his factories 24 hours a day in three different shifts. Um, And I believe part of this reasoning was that he or someone had kind of studied this and saw that worker productivity would drop off after some amount of time. So that's how he that was one of the other incentives for him to bring it down to eight hours um and then during the great depression the u.s government saw the 40-hour work week as a way to spread the available work around to fight massive on the massive unemployment problem so how you could say henry ford was such a proponent of the 40-hour work week that his name should have been henry 40 (laughs) (laughs) um yes exactly josh (laughs) (laughs) then in 1938 uh United States Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, This required employers to pay overtime to all employees who worked more than 44 hours a week. And then further, in two years later, it was amended to reduce that number to 40 hours, which then gives you the 40-hour work week. Um, And then there's also an article from Culture Amp that I was looking at that kind of lists out the important dates and things that happened. So I'll link that as well. That's kind of a simplified explanation of where the 40-hour work week came from? I think that for me, the 40-hour work week really has been built up by a lot of activists and labor union groups from around the world. Um, Mm -hmm. It seems like it's not just something in the U.S. that was constantly being challenged, but also across the globe. And 
one person, Robert Owen, he was a Welsh mill owner um, and also labor rights activist. He uh, coined this phrase of eight hours of labor, eight hours of recreation and eight hours of rest in hmm. 1817. Um, and him, alongside many others, constantly were pushing for better um, working conditions and more rest for those workers that are putting in, like at that time, hundreds of hours per week. Um, and so I just a big shout out to the activists out there. I think that uh, a lot of this would not have happened without them. Is this a thing that started just like developing um, and then finally like the push you know, culturally occurred. And then like, as Colton said, like this uh, eight hour work week was adopted eventually by the government in like 1938 and 1940. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was a, it was definitely a slow movement over time because prior to the 40 hour work week, there was a push. I don't know when it happened, but there was a uh, push to have a 10 hour day. I see. But then that was still 10 hours a day, six days a week. So it's still, you're looking at 60 hours. There are multiple labor movements over time that would improve working hour standards and working conditions along with it. Gotcha. It's kind of amazing that there's been like, I don't know, a hundred years of people being like, let's only work eight hours, five days a week. Yeah, the the eight hour workday, they say that it has roots from and origins from like the 16th century in Spain. Uh-huh. Um and there was uh, Philip II of Spain who was really pushing for these eight-hour workdays. And so it is interesting. It kind of shows how, like, change doesn't really happen in, like, a big moment, but a mm-hmm. lot of small changes that amount to where we're at. And I think that the 40-hour work week is exactly what that is. It's just a lot of small changes that people constantly are advocating for that have at this point, come to the 40-hour work day or work week. Um, but that kind of fight is still happening for better um, conditions, better experiences for workers. And also, you'll find that there's experiments out there that are trying to get it down to the four-day work week instead mm-hmm. of the five-day work week. And so um, I think that's something that will constantly be happening, but it will be a very slow kind of snowball not really a fast one right and then do you think that like that type of push is happening in office jobs or so i guess you could categorize them as like white collar jobs um when i think of the 40 hour work week i associate it with more like white collar office type jobs rather than working in retail or working in food service I think that um, it's important to realize it's not just the 40 hours, but really a lot of these changes also mean other benefits. So Mm -hmm, if you mm -hmm. do work over 40 hours here in the U.S., we have um, certain standards that you have to get paid accordingly. So there's overtime opportunities, there's benefit opportunities, things based on how many hours that you work. And so... I do think that um, you will see the constant um, discussion about better working conditions, less work, more uh, kind of play, um, but also knowing that these um, policies are being put into place not just to make sure you work for 40 hours. It's really more to make sure that if you work over 40 hours, you are getting compensated for that type mm-hmm. of work. 
Um, And I don't know if any of you have heard, but there's this whole thing called quiet quitting Mm -hmm. out in social media. I've actually heard it in many ways. It's not like the first time I've heard this concept, but basically the idea is that a lot of office workers are saying, you know, I've actually been putting in a lot more time based on my salary and I am trying to cut back to work my regular eight hours um, and not go above what my job description says. And so I think that's also another way that people um, and workers are trying to take control of how much effort they're putting into the company or the work that they do um, and putting boundaries in place that for a long time had gotten a little bit more blurred. Yeah. I mean, quiet quitting is like the the buzzword now, right? Like everybody's got an article about it. Like literally everyone has an opinion about it. And then like the clap back is quiet firing, which I feel like companies have been just doing that forever. You Mm. know, if they don't want to actually like fire you outright, they'll like put obstacles in your way or pass you up for, you know, promotions or whatever, you know, to get people to quit. And it's like presented as if it's, oh, well, you're doing quiet quitting. Well, we're going to do quiet firing as if it's like the companies are starting to get wise to what people are doing. It's just like not the way it is. I find that so bizarre because really it's just people saying, you know, I'm going to work what you've asked me to do. And what you're paying me to do. Exactly. And if you really think about it, a lot of white collar jobs, they're trying to extract as much labor out of you as they can. They give you a salary, which does not include overtime. They give you benefits, which are great. But um, a lot of the benefits are also trying to keep you in the office. And I think we've talked about that before. Um, And it's really not this idea of like, you're actually quitting. It's more of I'm not going to continue to give you my 12 hours a day. I'm trying to just put boundaries in place to have a work-life balance. In my opinion, that's kind of what it's like. Um, And the term quiet quitting isn't really helping it, I don't think. I think that's almost like a counterpoint to what this question is proposing, though. Yeah. Suggesting that the 40-hour work week is the standard working life for most. Um, The 40-hour work week is not standard for a lot of people. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but um, I mean, it, it's very common for people to work more than 40 hours. And also it's very common for people to work more than 40 hours and only get paid for 40 hours. Right. So it, it's almost it's kind of a thing that over time has companies have tried to find ways to get around those limits to where they bring people in on salary And then they pay them salary, but they're expected to work 40 plus hours every week. Loopholes. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see how this develops. Like, I think we had mentioned that there's like studies right now um, in different cultures, like in Europe and, and even in the US of people studying whether or not a smaller amount of worked hours per week helps with people's happiness or productivity or all these other metrics. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that that research shakes out trying to uh, answer some of these questions like, okay, like we've, you know, set the 40 hour work week in 1938. Like, is it good? (laughs) Can we do better? Right. And then you look at technology advancement, technology gets better and Mm -hmm. things can be automated, but then you have people fighting to keep those things in place 
yeah. because you need to keep people's jobs. And you don't work any less. Right. But it, it's like from the bigger picture, overall, people could work less, but then they wouldn't have hours in the right. way that the system set up. You don't right. get paid unless you're working the hours. And you don't get and you don't get health insurance unless you're working enough right. hours. And whether whether or not that's the most efficient way to produce things seems to be not an important factor. Well, it's interesting what you're bringing up, Colton, because this idea that the uh, you're just getting paid for the hours that you work. So, you know, if everything goes great and your technology improves over time, I mean, I guess the logical conclusion is that you then would not be working as many hours or you'd have the ability to not work as much. But because of the fact that you work for hours, I mean, that points mm -hmm. to a major transformation that had to happen, which uh, permeates the whole discussion we're having here, which is the separation or the isolation of the human being doing the labor from the fruits of the labor, the product itself. Traditionally, Humans were basically ruled by natural elements. Societies developed based on uh, how many resources, food, whatever you have, whatever you want to call it, how much can be reaped from the land. That's all dependent on a lot of intensive human activity. Uh, but once it gets going, you're basically producing and reproducing your society sun up to sundown all the time. Uh, and for example, what I'm talking about here would be pre-industrial agrarian societies. Um, mm. You're basically reproducing your society all the time. Then the question becomes when you're not doing that anymore because the new thing is to work in this industrial context in a factory where you still need human input, but adding that human input actually results in the creation of a product that itself contains a huge surplus value a value that's much bigger than mm. um how than how much the person is actually compensated whose labor becomes the input we're in a system where our productivity does go up over time mm -hmm. and it goes up a lot in the last few centuries we then have to figure out we have to square that with how much can humans work because we for better or worse companies or governments or whoever's ever at the head of production wants to keep it running you can get as much as you can from the inputs of your human labor so squaring one on the one hand what's the best way for the society to continue to produce itself plus then what's the best way for just a human body to do labor right. and to work over long periods of time um which is why it was so interesting colton that you brought up you're talking about how these work weeks were a lot earlier in the 1800s. And my question is why? Whoever thought that it, whoever thought that it was just okay to just work 70 hours a week? And especially in these cases, you're talking about industrial jobs that are probably very dirty and messy and difficult and labor intensive and hazardous. Hazardous. <laughs> Textiles and steel working. Why did why was it ever thought that that was okay for somebody to work like seventy hours a week or sixty hours a week, like a ten hour per day, six day a week work week? Is just insane to me. Well, it's, it's like you just said, where the person at the top is trying to get the most out of their inputs. So the, basically, at the dawn of this stuff, these workers coming in didn't really have any power, and they're just like, okay, you're gonna work eighty hours a week, and you're gonna like it. People probably didn't have a lot of choice. Right. Um, they probably needed the money. They probably had to. And had to work that much and it was just 
commonplace and expected. And as as you said, it's like the switch from agrarian society into like, uh, you know, like move from like farms into cities too. So like, if you're living in a city, this is your option. Just think right. about it at the time. Like, if you were working at that time and you're like, "Hey, boss, I want to have a forty hour work week," he'd be like, "All right, get out of here." <laughs> right. That was what was expected. It's like that's what the culture says. So if you try to go against it, you'll probably be uh, ostracized. Mm-hmm. basically for that like i, I can't see yeah. it going any other way so it's just until you have a big enough group to oppose it you almost don't have a choice that's that's kind of sad uh the point about the the hours in the week just following that strict structure i feel like it can lend itself to almost like wasted time where like you're working right but you're not really doing something useful and it's almost like everyone knows this particular thing's not useful, but you have to get the hours. And that's how I'm not saying everything that you do at work is useless, but that there are things. And I'm sure people out there have seen like this happen before where it's like for hours, you're just like, well, this was a big waste of everyone's time, but you have to get your hours in because that's the way this system functions. Mm -hmm. But from the perspective of this is how you get paid. It does make sense. It's just a messed up system. So we were talking about labor movements and how they helped progress the uh, improvement of working standards and the length of the work week. So our next question kind of goes deeper into that. So the next question posted on Reddit by user Landseal817. And the question is, why are workers and teachers unions unpopular? So just to ground this, an article from the Washington Post dated September 5th, 2022, why labor unions are more popular than they've been in six decades. In this article, Gallup Polls has been surveying Americans' attitudes toward labor unions for nearly 90 years. The most recent Gallup survey found that union support was higher than it has been since the mid-1960s. Nearly three-quarters of respondents, uh, 71%, said they approved of labor unions. So the question brings up that somebody has a thought that um, unions are considered unpopular but if you look at the Gallup survey, the overall, they're actually 71% approved. Um, that so is it, actually quite surprising. But this kind of shows you that there's a divide. Like, there must be a lot of people out there that have strong feelings that they are unpopular, too. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. also, I feel like it could point to the, the fact that what people's opinions are are very different from what they would actually do. Because... We know, for example, that union membership in the U.S. has gone down dramatically in the last few decades. So it's clear that of the people who are in the slot, so to speak, they're joining unions less and less. In 1965, uh, nearly one in three U.S. workers were union members. Today, only one in 10 workers are union members. Wow. Yeah, I'm wondering if the user was just thinking about the fact that it is a kind of a political connotation yeah. in the United States, but unions globally are not necessarily as polarized as mm-hmm. they are in the U.S. And in the U.S., I, they, we had a really high upswing um, when unions started to become a thing around the 30s um, and kind of up through the 50s. But then eventually they went down and now they're starting to come back up. So there's kind of this like bell curve, if you think, um, or an upside down bell curve, I guess, um, where we were about really high on 
how we thought about union membership, we went down and then we went back up. And um, I think there's a couple of reasons to why um, unions can get a polarized approach in the U.S. One being, I think they're kind of mythical. I don't know if people really understand the concept of what a union is and really what are the benefits that come from a union. Uh, a lot of times when you think about a union, you think about dues, you think about um, maybe some <laughs> do's and don'ts, maybe some red tape, <laughs> maybe possibly not really seeing the, the fruits of um, what the union can offer. And then on the flip side, for those at the top of a lot of companies, they see a downside to having unions because it now gives power to the people mm -hmm. to have a stake not only in their their welfare and the things that they get from the labor that they provide, but also they have a stake in the company. And in that power struggle, you'll see like places like Amazon who don't want to create a union because now they're giving a lot of power to their mass amounts of labor. And that can also give them the ability to bargain on the behalf of many instead of individual discussions. Right, right. And that can tip the scale. Well, I want to point out, Lori, that I think you're right. But I think the word that you're missing when you're talking about the the when you're talking about the choices that companies don't want to make, I think when you say that it, it's not that they don't want their employees, it's not that all companies do not want their employees to have power or a voice or a, even a stake in the company. It's more the notion to me that you, that power, it has to be relinquished. And it's, it, it's, it's not just the fact that they have some power or some agency but it's actually truly on the part of the for the for the part of the company they have to give that up yeah so why people might dislike unions i i think the arguments you would hear are situations before where there's been corruption in unions mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. or there's been maybe they're giving unreasonable demands and they've had a negative effect before also some might argue they hurt higher performing employees and reward low performing ones since you're, you're all in at the union rate, so if you perform a lot higher and you're a high performer, you're not going to get rewarded for that because you're just at the union rate. Or if you're a low performer, you just kind of slide by. You don't have to do anything because you're at the union rate. You're part of the union. Um, mm. Companies yeah. may argue that uh, workers will not be motivated to work harder, kind of going along with the high performing, low performing. Mm -hmm. Um and companies will also argue that union conditions, like the the things the union is demanding, will destroy the company, basically making it impossible for them to survive. And another one, people don't like to pay union dues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I've seen this before where anecdotally, like I've talked to people who are like, yeah, I don't I didn't want to join the union because I don't want to pay union dues. Yeah. And I think some of that disconnect may be that people don't understand the benefits the union maybe offers them. Um, and maybe like it's a case where the benefits are already there. You think it's baked into it and it's not going to change. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also super important to understand why unions started to go down and when. Mm -hmm. So there's a Time article. Basically, it said that unions were pretty high up until the mid 80s. And then they started to go out of style, basically, because um, 
companies were starting to refocus on the shareholder. And they're starting to rethink about how do they maximize shareholder value and minimize worker benefits. Um, and also this idea of this emphasis on the value of private property and private profit was coming into play. And so with all of these things, companies were starting to change their focus around how do I make sure my workers have the best place and the best um, way to think about these things to how do I make sure that my company is valued in the shareholder's mind? And this article goes on to articulate that although there's not necessarily a big impact on profit, um, what they do find is that shareholder value of a company that has been unionized may go down. Mm -hmm. And so the, the systems in place when they're thinking about, is my company going really well, they're not necessarily thinking about uh, their their employees or the, even necessarily just profit, now they are also thinking about their shareholders. And I think that's also something that's really interesting because I've worked for many companies that are very large. They mm. boast about their shareholder value. like, And that's what they're constantly trying to achieve is a higher shareholder value. However, I've also worked with a company that was saying that in one regard, but was also unionized before this happened. Um, and the workforce benefited from this union that was in place. And we got more vacation days. We had more protections on safety. Um, we had very strict rules on what you can do and what you can't do based on what the union was bargaining for. And although I wasn't technically part of the union, I was receiving the benefits of the union because they were moving together and they were bargaining together to advocate for all to get these benefits rather than just those in the union. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I had a great time working at the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. And I also have been a member of the United Auto Workers Union. At my my various work career, and I can tell you that unions are a huge whole world unto themselves. And um, I've definitely met people who have expressed uh, disdain or disgust for unions. Part of it, I'm not sure if you guys really mentioned it. I think it's probably at the end of the day, the union as a collective organization oddly somehow comes to represent a devaluation of individual labor kind of like Colton said where like some people are just kind of getting pulled along because like they have certain union rules and they're making certain wages mm -hmm. there's a certain valuation of individual labor and effort and achievement in American society that gets wrapped up into distaste for unions or collective groups it's a tough world out there but there's uh and there's people with opinions all over the board but I think that all of us here would probably agree that unions are fine Unions are great, in my opinion. I think it's especially hard to argue with their historical achievements in terms of like what we had discussed previously about the labor movements and bringing the work week down to yeah. and improving work conditions. I mean, if you look at like the hazardous conditions people worked in, I mean, like companies were just like, yeah, I don't care what happens to those employees. They'll be exposed to whatever. It doesn't matter. And, yeah. and the unions are a big reason that that stuff really ever got cleaned up fully agree that's why nobody should use the phrase human resources anymore 
(laughs) (laughs) If you look at some of the really large unions, it's almost like the union becomes a large behemoth in itself, right? It kind of goes along with the, if you have a disagreement then with the union, like you in the union and the union itself, like the union is then this gigantic thing that's probably going to crush you. Uh, The only closing thing I have for it is working and unions are very divisive topics, I feel like. So I, I guess in the stuff I said, I I understand it's not an easy problem to solve. Like with the work week and the the inconsistencies with how it works and some of the things, but but I'm not sitting here saying, Oh, I have the exact answer. Like it's a very complicated thing. The same thing with unions. Like there are a lot of complicated things with the way employment functions in the US. So I guess I just wanted to say that I understand it's very complicated. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would also add that unions have had a big part in shrinking the gap between those at the top and those at the bottom. And there's data out there, I'm not going to go into it, that shows that when unions were very active and people were part of them, the gap between the top and the bottom was shrinking. And in the US after the 80s, that gap started to get a lot bigger. And you'll see that in our society where there's a whole discussion around the 1% or the people at the top or things like that and how that is not trickling down into the rest of the organization. And I think unions have power to shrink that gap and to give power to many others rather than just a select few. And that, to me, is something that I don't think we really understand how impactful it can be, both in history and our ever slowly changing um, society, but also in making it just much more equal for many people in the in society. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, technology improves efficiency, wildly improves it. But then the top percentage of the people who probably own a lot of these profit machines, they get richer and richer. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Connect those dots. <laughs> Are you a connect the dots kind of guy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm connecting the dots. The dots are trickling down all over my face. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the question, Landseal817. And uh, we'll be back after this short break. And welcome back to the podcast. Next, we have our surprise question segment where the co-hosts don't know I'm about to ask them this question so we can hear their live unprepared initial reaction and response. So our surprise question this week posted on Reddit by user Greenspace Cat Dragon. And the question is, why are glitter bombs so bad? I, I get it. Glitters get everywhere. But what's the problem with that? Why is it so bad to have glitters everywhere? Lori, do you want to take this one? I agree. There is no problem with it. (laughs) I love glitter. (laughs) And Colton and Jessica know this intimately because I let (laughs) glitter bombs go off in their house. Yes, Lori orchestrated the um, like the bombing of our home with glitter. Um, on a New Year's Eve party, it was actually epic. Um, and 
like one for the books and it wouldn't have been the same without all of the glitter. I think there was like a metric ton of glitter in all of the surfaces in the house, like in the kitchen and living room areas, which is like one big open space. It was a fun time. It was a fun time. So to be fair, Lori did say, hey, we have these <laughs> glitter bombs. I asked for permission. <laughs> she, she asked permission for me. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds sick. Um, <laughs> we Okay, so some backstory on this. It was like, I think the first New Year's Eve party we had in our house, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And we had a bunch of our friends over, maybe 20 people, and everyone was having the best of times. And Lori brought some things to celebrate a little bit more. How many glitter bombs did you have? They were like more like confetti poppers, and I had probably 12. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they were gold, shimmery <laughs> confetti. And in Colton's defense, I don't know. I didn't ask Jessica, so I just asked Colton. <laughs> it was close to midnight. We've had some champagne. And I said, hey, Colton, is it okay if I use, if we pass out these like confetti poppers? And he said, Totally fine. Just do it in the kitchen where we can clean it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a, a mental thought. However, I did not comprehend how much the glitter would spread <laughs> through the house. And I don't remember if it was in the kitchen or on the carpet because the carpet was uh, something you could vacuum up. But you had a, a process in your head. And I said, cool, we're going to explode these things. And <laughs> I don't know if you're still finding glitter in your carpet, but... I wouldn't be surprised because it was everywhere. I think it's pretty much gone now. I still find glitter flakes. I'll have wow. to start pointing them out because they're I, mostly gone now. Every time I find one, it's like a nice little memory. I am actually glad that you did the glitter. It's a great memory and it was like nothing I've ever seen before. So all the glitter bombs go off. <laughs> <laughs> glitter all, Josh had glitter all over his back. Somebody directly hit Josh. <laughs> I was diving into the piles of glitter and somebody made a boomerang with it. That was what was popular with it. And I was like me diving on the floor into the glitter. Oh, I will find the photos. I will say the question around glitter bombs, they are wonderful, but <laughs> they are a bitch to clean up. And this is why there are many wedding venues out there that do not allow for confetti because oh, they would that. never be able to clean it up. Um, but also, this is not my only uh, moment in glitter bombs. <laughs> my friend used to send um, envelopes with glitter in them. And when you open them, you get glitter everywhere. And it's like really hard to clean up. And Josh, what a horrible person! Didn't you get one while you were? Um... <laughs> yes, I was in a field study program. I was in an archaeology dig in Illinois, and um, it was a whole letter full of glitter, which I received. And I saw it ahead of time. I saw. I was like, "This is a letter full of glitter. I know what this is." <laughs> and I very carefully opened it, and I managed to not really get any glitter anywhere. I was very pleased with myself for that. Um, and I set it on my bedside table. Problem was that I slept in the top bunk. And when I <laughs> came down in the morning to get out of the top bunk and come down for breakfast and such, I accidentally hit the table with my foot and the glitter envelope with its very <laughs> lightweight uh, flung into the air and the glitter went everywhere. 
and it was so, horrible. And there was, I'm pretty sure there was a guy sleeping in the bottom bunk and it got all over his feet or something. And it was, <laughs> it was terrible. When you say you could tell it was a letter full of glitter, what are like the signs? Well, I could just see through it. It's a white envelope and you just hold it up to light and you can see a million tiny little dots and they're all, you, the glitter is gathered in the bottom, right? Because you're yeah. holding it. Yeah, you can feel just, the bottom. You can uh, feel it. Okay. It feels like sand or, you know, and whatever. And you look at it, you hold it up and it's like, yeah, there's a ton of glitter. Plus, you have the information of who it's coming from. And with these ladies right. who were sending it to me, I was aware that this was going to be, this wasn't the only mail I received from the ladies this summer. But it was the most fun slash annoying. It seems kind of messed up to send somebody. I think it's oh, kind of funny. I'm going to be sending you some mail soon. I love it. Haven't you done enough? <laughs> <laughs> you will always forever remember me. I, I am know. embedded I... in the layers of your <laughs> carpet. You sparkle still. Uh, so to finish off the question here why are glitter bombs so bad they can be dangerous for cleaning up sure and glitter is plastic you don't want microplastics everywhere it's kind of right it's in the category of products that is sorry environment and i suppose now's a good time to bring up other crazy new year's antics that i'd like to do so okay i think it'd be really cool okay stay with me here guys you have people on new year's eve right Uh and you're celebrating the new year Okay, so everybody's kind of huddled around an area. I know where this is going. (laughs) He's been trying to say this is going to happen for like, (laughs) oh, what is it? I can't wait. So everybody's kind of huddled around. And then then you're kind of, you're off to the back hiding a little bit. Nobody sees you. And then you shake up a bottle of champagne. (laughs) You pop it open. You jump in front and you spray everybody with that (laughs) champagne right at midnight. Terrible. You're a monster. Don't ever do that. That'd be awesome, right? (laughs) You got to open it with a saber, though. You got to chop it off and then spray it. Yeah, spraying it all over people and my hands just bleeding, too. (laughs) (laughs) Opening a bottle of champagne with a saber is actually very easy. People Mm -hmm. think that it's very difficult, but it's actually very easy. You take your champagne bottle... And you have to get it cold. It has to be cold. And then you hold it at 45 degrees and you like take your knife at the 45 degree angle along the seam of the bottle. Um, Mm -hmm. You take off all of the the paper and like the foil so that it's just the cork and you just go up the seam of the bottle with a lot of gusto and the bubbles inside when you hit it, it causes it to pop the actual glass, the top ring around your, the top of the champagne bottle. It mm-hmm. pops off. So you're left with a clean cut on your glass. But because of the bubbles, it doesn't ever get glass in the champagne bottle. It bubbles out. So it's very easy. There's a YouTube video on it. Just be safe. <laughs> Do it when you're, before you have had champagne. Are we also going to talk about glitter bombs like on that YouTube channel from people that are stealing packages? Oh, those are, that's lovely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so there's a uh, videos. Uh, Mark Rober, I believe, is the guy who puts the videos out. And he, Mark Rober, does a bunch of like intricate, complicated invention things, kind of. I see. And one of the things is a, uh, a fake package because people are stealing his packages. So he made a glitter bomb 
that when they steal the package and open it, it's a glitter <laughs> bomb that goes all over. Hero. See, in all the contexts we've talked about, glitter actually seems to be great, except for cleanup, microplastics, and um, those are the only two things yep, that are negative. Except for those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, so back to our regularly scheduled questioning. Our last question for this week, posted on Reddit by user irrelevantopinion123. And the question is, what are your top three favorite spoons? <laughs> Mine is the dessert spoon with a long handle, a soup spoon, and a spatula with holes in it. My theory is that these three are enough for any purpose you would use any kind of spoon for. And my question to you guys is, are you guys particular about your utensils, your spoons? I do have some favorite spoons. Do we get to count a spork as a spoon? I think so. Because I'm a big fan of those. I think they're it's great. It's more spoon than fork, I think. Yes, I would say I would so, agree. too. I think that's great. I think we can widen to a utensils in general. From this question, I think the interesting idea is, because I'm very particular about my spoons. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I like this spoon for True. ice cream. Yep. And this other spoon is really good for soup. And sometimes if I don't have the right spoon, I'll go and I'm like, if it's like dirty, I'll go wash that no, spoon. No, he'll, he'll reject the spoon. Yeah. Tell them the whole story. Just go try <laughs> to give me an inferior spoon for the thing I'm eating. And I'm like, I can't, I can't yeah, use Yeah, he'll spoon. reject the spoon that I've handed to him and like... <laughs> He will get up and then wash the proper spoon because he must have the correct spoon. I appreciate this about Colton, though. Irrelevant opinion, one, two, three. Yes, I agree with you that you can have three favorite spoons. Um, I don't know if those are the three correct spoons. I, it's a hard thing to put it down to three. I might want, I want, I want a standard spoon, too, because sometimes I don't want a soup spoon or a dessert spoon. But I am particular about my utensils. Yeah. And it sounds like, Lori, you are too. Like you have like a passion for utensils in general. Is that <laughs> what I am to understand? <laughs> I do have a preference. Yes. Um, I think my default like everyday spoon is a dessert spoon. I like the smaller element of it. I don't like the really big ones. Like a soup spoon is just a little too big for me. I like mm -hmm. the smaller bite sizes. Um, I also really like the ramen soup spoons. I don't know if, uh, what you call those, but they're like, they're more like a dish than a spoon. Yeah. You can like set the spoon down. It's got like a flat bottom. Yeah. I like that. So mm -hmm. I would say a spork, a dessert spoon and whatever that cool ramen spoon is. Are you drawn to particular styles of spoons though? So you have like, like you've categorized like soup spoon or uh, dessert spoon and like sporks, but like, are there certain like styles of utensils that you gravitate? You're talking like the handle? Yeah. Yeah. Like the There's overall ones balance. There's that I don't like. Yes. But I don't know how to articulate it. The ramen sp soup spoon is in Japanese is called chirirenge or more Ooh. commonly just renge which translates to fallen lotus petal. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. That's the one I like. I do think the type of utensil is super important. It's going to take away from my ice cream experience if I don't have the proper dessert spoon. Or have you ever been to places where you get a terrible like plastic utensil? Yes. And that's the only thing you have to use? Painful. It takes away from the eating experience. I agree with mm. you. Um, I love utensils. I I see them as little sculptures don't don't come at me um i really love the way that like some utensils have beautiful design you pick up a fork or a spoon 
they're balanced and they're beautiful and ergonomic. Kind of reminds me of really fancy metal mechanical pencils, which I also have an obsession with. I have a collection of Japanese um, mechanical pencils that are made out of aluminum. They're just a thing that I'm into and things that I like about mechanical pencils kind of like transfers over to like utensils. Listen, I can appreciate I can appreciate a nice fork handle, but you might be crossing some lines the way you're docking at these. Uh, look, these, look, I don't know. So I also like little tiny spoons. Like if you ever like picked up those like dumb, like small. I was just like, going to say like that says like U.S. Virgin Islands. It's like Bahamas. Like, yeah. It's like all those little spoons. No, 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 no. Like, no? yes. N- yeah. I know what you're talking that's about. What, that's what she's talking no, about. No, but that's be. not what I'm actually talking about. I'm talking about like Shoot. just small size spoons like spoons for babies like no like we have oh. some of them they're like spoons for condiments and shit like they're, yeah, I, like I think those. they're spoons for babies no they're so they're cute. not baby spoons they are so cute <laughs> and like little tiny like the little like um like crab forks like they're just so cute i just love them anyways walking back to the question <laughs> your top three favorite spoons so i want to say my top three favorite spoons okay i'm gonna agree on the dessert spoon Long-handled dessert spoon. That's in my top three. And then I'm going to go spatula um, made of like that heat-resistant silicone. You're talking about the spoonula. The spoonula, if you Not really a spoon, but okay. I mean, I'm just trying to follow the rules of the game. not a spoon. Okay, cancel that one. (laughs) A wooden spoon that I can cook things with. Mm, I do like a wooden spoon. And then a just kind of your standard spoon with a nicely weighted handle that's kind of got a little bit of curve, but not too much. See? And it's just the right size. Do you see what he's doing? (laughs) You see what he's saying? Also, if sometimes you want a thin spoon and then sometimes you want a weightier spoon, you know, Mm -hmm. like like it depends on like what type of food you're eating with it. Jessica, did you want to give your top three spoons? Okay, yes. Um, Also dessert spoon. Um, I would also say... Um, we have this particular set of soup spoons that I love. And because I would agree with Lori that a typical soup spoon is too big. We have small soup spoons and mm, I, I love would like them. Those. And then in terms of like cooking utensil type of spoons, like I don't feel like those like go in this category. Okay, so, we'll like, pick, a, pick your third I'm going to pick like the dainty spoon, like the um, like the useless spoon, which is just purely for my aesthetic pleasure, I guess. And um, for condiments, like to stir up a little aioli. I don't know. Okay. Josh, do your three favorite spoons? Yes. My favorite spoons are the slotted spoon, the spotted spoon. And the regular spoon. Regular is the spoon. spotted spoon, is that just like from damage over time? It's got spots on it? What are you talking Yeah. What no, it's it's actually a moo cow pattern on the spoon. Oh, okay. Is it plastic? Is this, did this come out of a cereal box? No, this is... Our, this is no, it's, it's artisanal product. Even a spotted cows make chocolate milk. <laughs> It's artisanal. It's a spotted spoon. I also, let's not forget about the good old slotted spoon, which is great if you're like me and you like to eat pasta. You need that slotted spoon to get the pasta out of the hot boiling water. How are you draining your pasta? Do you use a, you just need something with slots in it and you just get the pasta go through the slots. The water goes through the slots. You could get 
like a strainer where you pour the pasta with the water into the strainer. Are you explaining colanders? A colander, that's the word. Yes, col- that is, yes, that is, I, this, is a, this is a kitchen technology. Not a spoon. But why, I, that's what I'm saying, why don't you use that instead of a spoon? The slotted spoon is just, ne- it's just necessary for, cro- for all processes of pasta making. Okay, I- I'll take your word for it. I just don't understand. I wouldn't waste a spoon on that. <laughs> you don't want a slotted spoon? No. I am curious. I tend to prefer a spoon over a fork. Like, like if I'm eating mac and cheese, I will pick a spoon over a fork. 100%. Me too. Oh, no. So Jessica's on the same page. What about you two? I'm on team spoon. I, I would say it depends on the mac and cheese. I would say generally. Now, here's the thing, though. I have a fork. That's got a very like a spoon hef- spoon like profile. Yeah, it's, it's not a spork though. It's got a very like hefty like landing zone on the back edge of the fork, mm-hmm. so you can almost kind of spoon it up a little bit. You can, you yeah. Can. The, that's that's the a tines great fork. are thick, and it's yeah. a hefty fork. It's a hefty. <laughs> Still not the same. <laughs> no. Yeah, but that's. I would say that's probably my go-to for pastas of all kinds. I wouldn't be able to make my mother's pasta recipe if I didn't have a slotted spoon. <laughs> That's all that matters to me is keeping the traditions alive. Yeah, you could. You need it. You got how are you going to stir through the sauce? What are you going to do with all those pig neck bones? You got you're going to pick them up. You want to examine the pig neck bone while it's in the sauce, but you don't want the sauce to obscure your view of Ew. it. So you got to have a slotted spoon in which the sauce can go through the spoon, but the neck bone will become clear. Or you can just use a regular spoon and then like lean it up on the side of the pan so the juice drips out and you still have whatever the heck you're trying to get out. But it's just so useful in so many other circumstances in which you do need a spoon, but it is okay if the liquid goes through it. Hey, man, they're your top three spoons. All right, so I'd like to replace the spotted spoon. That was a joke. It didn't go very well. Uh, I have the slotted spoon. After that, I'll just take the regular size spoon, please, sir. <laughs> and then lastly, I will take a decorative spoon that is from the independent nation of the Bahamas. <laughs> also another joke that didn't land. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm just trying to get what other spoons are there. Colton, you said the wooden spoon. I was going to take the wooden spoon. You can take the same spoon. It's not a I draft. can't take the spoon. It's... You took the spoon. <laughs> This is a spoon. We draft. all have to. We all have, we all have dessert spoons. Except for Josh. Yeah. I don't need it. You guys have the. If, if we are stuck on a desert <laughs> island together, I'm gonna have the variety that needed to make good types of pasta. <laughs> all right. Thank you for the question. Irrelevant opinion. One, two, three. Thank you for all the questions this week. You can see the questions discussed on the show, or share the best questions you have, or find on Reddit with us on our subreddit r slash no stupid answers pod you can follow us on twitter at nosa underscore podcast if you like the show please rate us five stars on your podcast app of choice as that helps us out the most uh subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts and we'll see you next time bye all keep on trucking that's why it goes to show that you can't have your cake and eat it too